Hello and welcome to Supers On Screen, the superhero movie podcast. I'm your host, Dylan Roth, and today we're going to be talking about DreamWorks Animation's 2010 movie, Megamind, starring Will Ferrell, Tina Fey, Jonah Hill, David Cross, Brad Pitt, and just about nobody else. <laughs> uh, yeah. My guests today are comedian and writer and cartoonist Tracy Mock. Hello. And Deadshirt.net contributing writer and actor and various jack-of-all-trades Ian Nguyen. <laughs> That's a very generous description. Thank you. I'm a nice guy. Yeah. <laughs> so today we'll be talking about Megamind. Uh, my little summary for, for this movie is mad scientist supervillain Megamind suffers an identity crisis after he finally bests his arch-nemesis Metro Man. Now a man without purpose, Megamind tries to create a new hero to fight and ends up creating a real menace only he can defeat, all the while trying to stir up romance with daring reporter Roxanne Ritchie. This movie is, I guess, the first villain-focused movie that we've been doing on this young podcast so far. Oh, and uh, also the first, and I think only DreamWorks production that's on my list of over 150 movies. <laughs> um, so I guess we'll start as we always do, talking about how you each first encounter this movie. Uh, Tracy, have you seen this before? You before preparing for the podcast? I have seen it several times. Yes. What was your first? What was your first ex- uh, exposure to Megamind? Uh, I was, I saw it in the theater when it came out originally. Uh, I was excited for it just based on the premise and, uh, the, the cast involved. And then even more by, like, I know there was some press in advance of, about, uh, like, uh, Guillermo del Toro coming in and, like, helping with the production of it and everything. And I was hearing these just these rumblings of, oh, it's actually, it's really good superhero story. And, and that's, uh, you know, right in my wheelhouse. And I, I was very eager to see it when it, when it came out and, and I was pretty blown away by it. And I've since owned it and watched it a number of times just for enjoyment. And Ian, you were brought on to do this episode because of a conversation that we had uh, a couple of weeks ago when you were first on the show that I don't think made, I think that was uh, not in the episode because I wanted to save it for this. But I know this is the oh, first geez. time you've seen it, but not your first exposure to the material. So if you will please regale our audience with your story. Okay, so I belong to um, a small community of internet fan artists. Like we all met through uh, My Little Pony, actually. But we do just like love to celebrate just like just all fandom art. Like good fan art is good art. These people are artists in their own right. We're all you know do our own stuff. But there's always that like love of going back to making fan art of, you know, something that we like that we're fans of. But due to that sort of experience, we also enjoy celebrating just how weird fan art can get. And there's something very interesting that happens with uh, I would say a lot of just the non-Pixar animated films where communities such as Tumblr or DeviantArt just pick up on these characters and they start making just some really, really interesting, very off-kilter stuff. And <laughs> so I, I'd never seen Megamind. I saw the trailer, I'm sure, sometime during you know 2010 or whatever and thought, okay, maybe I'll see that, maybe I won't. And then I didn't. But it kept on popping up more and more as we kept on doing our DeviantArt dumpster dives, just trying to find, you know, the weirdest thing we could. 
And there was a stretch of time where, yeah, we would just see, um, I guess you would call it Metro Mind was the ship that came out of Mega Mind. <laughs> just because, hey, these are two male characters in a movie. They're animated. So let's put them together and let's see which one we have pregnant in this one, you know? <laughs> and it was just like a back and forth. Maybe Mega Mind was pregnant. Maybe Metro Man was pregnant. Maybe we're, they were both pregnant. And then, you know, it just kind of just kept on going on from there. And I honestly think that the fandom is like still somehow kind of alive. It pops up every now and then. It's, it's interesting. But so due to that weirdness, uh, I decided that maybe it was time to just see where it all came from. <laughs> <laughs> well, were you disappointed then from that? Or did you find anything in the movie that made you think, oh, okay, I guess I can see where that's coming from? Or I don't see it at all. <laughs> <laughs> I just see uh, a decent animated movie. And I guess some people just have their imagination set to a different dial. <laughs> so... I first saw this movie, I think, only about a year ago. It was on HBO, and I, I caught it on HBO Go. I, I think I may have avoided it for a while. I am generally not a fan of DreamWorks animated pictures, but that's not really fair to say because I've avoided most of them for <laughs> for years. Um, I think the last one that I saw would be like... I don't know, Shrek 2 or something. Were they, did they do the Cloudy and the Chance movies, though? Because I like those. I think they did. Okay. I think they did. Yeah. I was turned off by... Um, I want to say that those are actually universal, but I would have to double-check. I should really, if I was preparing to talk about this, I should probably have brought that information in front of me. But they're not superhero movies, and I'm not required to be an expert on them. Correct. So, um, you get a pass. No worries, they didn't do it. <laughs> okay. <laughs> I'm, I'm always like, I, could, I couldn't put my finger on what I didn't like about DreamWorks, at least their promotion of movies, because again, my dislike of them came more from the way they presented their material more than the material itself, because having not seen it, I can't judge it. But I can judge the advertising and, and the sort of way that they try and sell their product and the way that they, that they present it. Um, and the nostalgia chick, Lindsay Ellis, did a really good series of videos comparing Pixar and DreamWorks to the uh, sort of attitude Cold War that happened between like classic Disney and Warner Brothers. Mm. That Disney was about being earnest and um, and like like good, clean, heartfelt fun, and that Warner Brothers was about the raised eyebrow. And um, <laughs> actually, I think her vid- one of the videos in the series was called "Rise of the Eyebrow." And the way that um, Disney proper, not Pixar rather, but Disney Disney animation started to compete with DreamWorks as to who could have the more eyebrow raisy promotional posters. <laughs> and but that's how you're supposed to know that it's like kooky and edgy and like self and like self deprecating humor rather than say what Pixar does, which is just to break your heart <laughs> year after year yes. Yes. with these amazing movies that just hurt. <laughs> and I prefer those. Uh, I, I do as well. Yeah, I, I, I do as well. Yeah, I'd rather listen to the Smiths than say Wings. You know? <laughs> um, so I I didn't want to. I love the Incredibles. Anybody who's been listening to this podcast for you know however many weeks it's been on, I think this is like the twelfth episode, um, knows that the Incredibles is the only movie that I think is perfect in the entire superhero movie canon. <laughs> and mm-hmm. this was like DreamWorks to me 
like from somebody who was not seeing it, from someone who's just looking at the promotional material. It's like, oh, well, this is DreamWorks being like, oh, they did a superhero movie. Well, we're do a wacky DreamWorks supervillain movie that makes fun of the concept and has Will Ferrell in it. And I was kind of like, I don't know if this is for me. And so I skipped it. And when I finally saw it, I was not impressed with it. And I, I kind of was not super excited to watch it again for the podcast, you know, with a burden I place upon myself and have no right to complain about. <laughs> um, but I actually, this time watching it, I was I was kind of bored for the first half of the movie, but I found the third act to be really excellent and redeemed the whole thing for me. Hmm. Hmm. So let's let's see. Um, what are your? I know that uh, Tracy, you you enjoyed enough to watch to buy it and watch it a bunch of times, and. What is it that you really like about Megamind? What makes it special to you? Uh, first off, uh, just for podcast accuracy, I would like to say that Cloudy with a Chance of Meatballs was distributed by Sony Pictures. Okay. I, had to, I looked it up. <laughs> Thank you, Tracy. Uh, there we go. Now, uh, on to your question. Uh, 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 I, I'm, I'm a huge fan of it, really. And uh, I totally understand what you're saying, though, as far as DreamWorks and kind of what they set themselves up to be because they had that reputation uh, back then as far as, well, Disney's doing this critically lauded thing. We'll do something super similar and release it really close to what they're, you know, there's that whole war of oh, Pixar did a bug's life and here's DreamWorks with ants and uh, Pixar does Finding Nemo and here's DreamWorks with Shark Tale. And they were all oh. like, <laughs> yeah. Like even before, like now you can find the the super cheap ripoffs of all the Pixar movies that are starting. They show up in like video stores the week those movies come out, and some of them are on Netflix. Uh, just trying to cash in on that, and it felt like that's what DreamWorks was, except that they were spending a lot of money on it. Um, and so I was with you in the past as far as yeah, what a bunch of jerks just making really cheap gross comedies to try to cash in on the really genuinely good moving uh animation that actually has a, a voice and a, and a and a point of view to it and 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 that but i i they've really i think transcended that in the last few years and they've been doing genuinely great animated things like the how to train your dragon movies and 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 i count megamind among that and uh, it's i wouldn't disagree with you that it is sort of dreamworks making their own incredibles but not in like the cheap ants and shark tail way but in more like i don't see it as specifically this is our answer to incredibles but i do feel that it is in the vein of The Incredibles in that it's just a really good subversion of superhero tropes, specifically Superman. Like, it's actually got a really great Superman story, almost, in, like, a Elseworlds, like, I like a, I don't know, like, Red Sun, almost. Like, what if the rocket landed in, 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 Mega Man's case, or Mega Mind's case, it's what if you know, Superman's rocket landed in a prison for the criminally insane <laughs> versus a you know loving Kansas uh, f- you know farm home. Yeah, I know that the elevator pitch for this movie was what happens if Lex Luthor actually beats Superman. Like, what happens next? What does he do? 
Mm. Yeah. And I guess it, it, it works on that level, I guess, uh, pretty well, even though that story has sort of been told in, in comics in a couple of different ways with a couple of different characters. This is a different take on it. Like, I I definitely want to address that, uh, like, that feeling. Yeah, like, you know, there is that follow-up, that lesser follow-up thing that DreamWorks did for a while. But, you know, I, I definitely I definitely see where you can definitely give them a lot more credit with Megamind because, like animated movies about bugs or fish like that's not the wide pop culture trend like pixar just decided to go with these like little settings and make something great with that and ants and shark tail just feel like copycats of this one other thing megamind at least it comes you know a couple years into the like full superhero like resurgence in pop culture like in terms of like really really mainstream pop culture yeah. in terms of movies and yeah. stuff like that this is and it feels a lot larger. less shallow yeah it's not yeah. like i have a, a sister podcast about fish movies <laughs> <laughs> there are not that many of those this is yeah that's a, definitely a very fair point there also are a number of years between the incredibles and this movie it's not as if they were back to back it's not as if rap production began on one and then dreamworks said we need to have our counterpart to that um, it's probably do- unfair to compare the two of them, but I will because I'm mean. I'm sorry, Lizzie, go on. <laughs> no, I, I, I do think that there's some shared DNA between them, and I think I feel that in a good way, and maybe you feel that in a different way. <laughs> this movie, actually, though, I did, I did find a lot of things to like about it, and I think most of it is there on purpose. So let's, let's talk about... Um, Let's talk about Megamind, the character, and kind of follow him through the movie because he is, he's kind of a, a fun and interesting lead that's different from characters we get in most superhero movies. Definitely. Mm-hmm. Um, he's voiced by Will Ferrell, and he's so Will Ferrell. It's, <laughs> he's doing a voice, but but the kind of character is it's definitely like this really like over-the-top, like kind of crazy self like self-important? Oh, Megamind is certainly self-important, but I'm trying to decide if that's a, yeah. a, a trait for Will Ferrell characters. I would say Ron Burgundy, you know, his version of George yeah. W. Bush, stuff like oh, that. Oh, for sure, yeah. Uh, and there's there's a level of Goofy in this character that is so far beyond the level of Goofy of the world around him and the rest of the film. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And that's sort of endearing because it, it's like, it's not as if this is a crazy, goofy, totally unreal world where this character lives, and that's what made him that way, he really is that much over the top, even within his own context. I love that what my take on the, his performance for this character is it's very much... I, I just love the way he plays up the fact that this is a guy who... He didn't really get the school ex- or, or shul experience uh, uh, because of just the way the the way things went in his his childhood there but he plays it up in as much as he will just continuously mispronounce words uh, like like that he knows what the word is he's seen it like he's read the word but he's never been in a social situation where he's heard how that word is pronounced mm-hmm. so it's like you he's a super genius he's an incredibly smart person uh, you know, alien whatever um, but He's had such a lack of social background in his upbringing, growing up in a yeah a prison for the criminally insane. That I I just love that that 
that take. And it is a very fun Will Ferrell. That's certainly a trait I've seen him use in other things or uh, an SNL performance or, or something or other. But I, I love that, that that particular take, just because that is part of Megamind's background in that he gets kind of kicked out of school at a very young age, so maybe didn't get to the parts where he got to hear how words were supposed to sound. Hmm. Hmm. He's definitely... what fun thing for me about Megamind is the is that his life is so guided by fate, right? So his beginning is he and Metro Man both get the Superman origin story. They're rocking mm-hmm. it off of a dying world by their parents or whatever. And just, be, just due to fate which Megamind would view as sort of malevolent, like somehow Metro Man is at fault for his particular, for his own destiny. Megamind ends up getting the raw deal out of everything all the time. Um, you could read into the fact that part of his misfortune is because he has a, he's blue and has a weird bulbous head, whereas <laughs> Metro Man is Brad Pitt uh, slash Elvis. <laughs> With uh, a... A beautiful head of hair, a yeah. great big smile, and a wink, even from as a baby onward. Just... Yep. <laughs> yeah. But the movie really is the story of what happens when Megamind gets a choice about whether or not he's going to be a villain. And and showing his true colors as to whether he's going to be a, whether he's going to be a good guy or a bad guy. And even from the beginning of the movie, it it's kind of, you know, he's really not, you know, not a not a bad guy so much as he is an extremely unlucky one yes yeah i um i do like the character a decent amount honestly i found him i found him myself liking him a lot more than i expected to like him with the whole will ferrell voice thing uh (laughs) but his like will ferrell's performance in like it seems like most of the characters were directed to read on a very even keel, like not do too much. Like everyone comes off sounding a little bit more natural, even if they're like goofy in that natural way. Like he's very over the top. Yeah. But he never goes into um, like just back and forth yelling fits or just like just saying really bad jokes, you know, loudly and stuff like that. Nothing, nothing like that, that harms the sense of that of the movie and the character. Um, for what it's worth, the character arc of Megamind is he's basically just like I honestly believe that I don't know how much of the movie is just him being the villain that's in the starring role, and that's there's just things playing off of that, but it doesn't really do much until we find out that Metro Man's alive. And then they have that conversation. And then the movie really has to have, like, it actually starts to do something with uh, his character, I think. Until that point, he seems to just be the villain who, you know, is the lead and doesn't know what to do with that. I would say that there's a change even prior to that, just by virtue of the relationship he strikes up with uh, Tina Fey's character and, like, the ver- the first like genuine emotion and caring he's ever received in his life and like the confusion that stirs up with him in that when he he does start doing good things like before the metro man reveal even it's just little things like uh, uh dehydrating all the trash and returning paintings to the museum and and just little little things and they you know there's a news report that says like crime is down 
and just all these little things that he he's not viewing as heroic acts. He's viewing it as like, oh, well, this person's actually kind to me and likes me. And that makes me want to do kind things back for her and and that sort of thing. And it doesn't become framed as uh, like, a, hey, you actually have hero potential until the, the Metro Man encounter. He's still kind of doing a lot of those nice things for selfish reasons, though. He really does want to 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 win over Roxanne, and and to convince her that he can be, I guess, worthy of love. I don't actually see them. I, I would actually have to disagree, and and not. I don't see them as selfish when he does them. I mean, it could it could have been framed that way, certainly, but I feel like when he's doing them, it's genuinely out of a kindness and caring rather than oh, this will make me look good because she seems to already like him even though it's not him he's i mean the whole problem with it is that he's in disguise while this whole uh, relationship is going on but when he's doing these things i mean he'll have a, like a slight moment of like oh uh, maybe megamind's not so bad after all but if he was actually doing it for a selfish reason he would have been maybe more overt with the idea that Oh, I'm actually Megamind, like right away, and and doing those things, like he's he's almost doing them in secret because it's Megamind doing them, and he as Bernard isn't taking credit for any of these things. Actually, though, he does sort of big up mm. uh, Megamind a little bit as Bernard, like when they're walking <laughs> through the park or walking through the town. He's like, oh, everything got cleaned up, and he's like, I guess Megamind's not so bad after all. You know, I think sort of like I sort of in its own funny way, sort of like a. a uh, Clark Kent Superman kind of thing. Yeah, I think yeah. he's to. I think it's to soften her up for like he knows that he's not going to be able to keep up this ruse forever. So you know maybe just gradually ease her into the idea that maybe Megamind's not such a terrible guy until you know he finally does get to to uh, reveal his identity to her. So let's let's take this opportunity then to talk about Roxanne. Uh, Roxanne Ritchie, voiced by Tina Fey, and of course Tina Fey rules. So she, yes. she manages to inject a lot of really like most of the best jokes in the movie are delivered by her. <laughs> and Roxanne is a no like a uh, completely un un uh, ashamed Lois Lane sort yes. of homage. She's a total <laughs> Lois XB, and she's oh, yeah. I think a really good Lois. Very much like like good enough to be actual Lois Lane. Yeah, if you called her yeah. Lois Lane in this movie, I would I wouldn't I would have no problem with that because she basically is like she does she has all the qualities that you want in Lois. She's got a commitment to the truth, and she puts like she's like fearless in pursuing it. She's got a really great attitude towards like supervillains and assholes. <laughs> and whatever um there's it, they definitely like it, it's sort of a tired joke at this point but the whole idea of lois just rolling her eyes at the prospect of yeah. being kidnapped because it's happened to her so many times one of her first lines in the movie is when she's been sucked she's been stuffed in a bag and in the opening sequence when uh megamind is has kidnapped roxanne for like the umpteenth time in order to get metro man's attention and they take her out of the bag and she says would it kill you to wash the bag <laughs> And that's, you know, it, I think that that is, it plays on humor that is not new to comic book fans. And I know this is a kid's movie and they're not necessarily going to be as genre savvy as the adult viewers. Uh, but they there's a lot of life still left in that joke, apparently, when you have Tina Fey working on it. Oh, yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. She is, um, 
I guess really the 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 most just straight up heroic character in the movie, seeing as it's a movie populated mostly by assholes. <laughs> That's fair to say. Yeah. Uh, she also, uh, I guess. I'm sorry. Go on. <laughs> I'm honestly just trying to find more things to say about her, though, because I mean, it is you know, I, I won't blame the movie for it being you know, it's it's still uh, an animated movie uh, more aimed for children, and so like, eh, there's, I do like the basics of her character. Like I do like that they give her those montages of figuring things out, being a newswoman, like just doing those things and just being that smart, capable person she is. But she's very much, I don't know, after a while, especially in the middle section, I felt like she became very much background, uh, mm. kind of set dressing um, sort of thing where, you know, she, I mean, she figures out the Titan thing and then, well, I guess that discovery comes to her anyway because Titan shows up and does that whole first really terrible interaction with her, you know, like throwing her around the city and stuff like that. And I don't know, after, after a while, it just really seems like she recedes back into just this sort of background character with lines sort of thing. I don't know. She has a decent impact on the, on the climax of the movie in in more ways than just the sort of cliched I believe in you love interest role. Right. Um, she does get to take part in a bit of the action. Uh, this movie definitely, on at least the surface level, does not does not break away from the from the sort of gender role box that so many superhero movies have. This movie has basically five characters. There isn't really even a secondary cast to the movie. Mm-hmm. So, it's not like it's shocking that it doesn't meet the first uh, the the first level of the Bechdel test, <laughs> <laughs> because there there I don't think that I think the only other uh, woman in the movie who has a line is in the very very beginning when you have Megamind's parents telling him he's going to you know giving right. him the yeah we're, yeah we're Jor-El and Lark but not we're blue and. Uh, I, I don't know. I, I I feel like I'm I'm struggling with it now because when I was watching the movie, I'm like, oh yeah, Roxanne's cool. And now that we have to talk about her at any kind of length, yeah, it's that's like, the oh, thing. Yeah, there's really not I'm, that much there. <laughs> I'm really pausing to be more like to just say something else other than, I guess she represents Lois Lane's basics pretty well. But I mean, it, it's a very basic movie. Has a very basic idea, and I think it communicates some of that stuff pretty well. Like, like I'll, I'll honestly admit, like, you know, yeah, a lot of those, some of the jokes do really hit right. Like, they set them up right. They don't expect the entire audience to know every single superhero trope, especially, you know, stuff that's been around in pop culture for ages, but maybe hasn't seen a resurgence since or been referenced since. And, you know, some of those jokes do work because they set them up and they let people in on it before they deliver that punchline. And... But for the most part, I feel like the characters don't have that sort of setup, really. And I feel like they're they're mostly just the characters that you need to have the idea of what happens if the villain wins story. Hmm. Yeah. yeah. And, and I feel like most of what I have to say about uh, her character is more in relation to the Titan character and how that whole thing plays out. Mm-hmm. Let's go there then. Let's talk about Titan 
for the record, is is spelled like to tighten something rather than to be the fathers of the gods or whatever. <laughs> yeah. Um, Titan, voiced by and I think modeled after Jonah Hill, mm-hmm. is this is where I have to give the, the movie a little bit of gender credit. A really, really awful example of entitled male yes. bullshit. Yeah. <laughs> and that that is where the movie gets gets some gets some points because he is he acts like a total creep, is framed as a total creep, and all of his shit is all seen through the eyes of Roxanne and how weird and terrifying that is. Yes, that's what uh, I love so much about this movie is really the, even though you could say the villain of the movie is Megamind because he's the Lex Luthor character, but the villain of the movie is is Titan, is, the, is Jonah Hill's character, and it's because he is, yeah, that entitled dude that, oh, I... Uh, I was nice to you, so you should uh, owe me a date or have feelings back or something. Yeah, just the way his interactions with Roxanne and how she's not just uh, portrayed as being like cold or standoffish or a bitch. She's just, uh, I'm sorry, I'm, like, she just full on says to him, I'm, I'm just not interested or thanks, like just, you know, trying to be nice and and blow him off, and, and he's just in his relentless pursuits, is a very uncomfortable and awkward pursuits uh, to get her to be interested in him, and it just it, it devolves into just this awful, awful character, and mm-hmm. just but an even bigger, more grotesque villain than Megamind ever was. I guess Megamind has a Megamind has a has a victim complex, but Titan has like an an insane like super inflated, but sadly not uncommon sense of 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 in, of entitlement. That's just like I think maybe even last year watching this, I was not as in tune with just how shit. There are so many of these dudes walking <laughs> around, and this one can melt people with his face and. And it kind of, even though it still has the whole, you have to win the love interest character at the end, um, get the girl, which is the phrase that's used a lot in the in the movie. Yeah. Um, it definitely having that contrast makes the makes Megamind's own weird, sad romance thing much more forgivable and understandable and sort of endearing even though yeah. it's got its own unfortunate implications. Because, hey, you know, he did try, and he did do things, and he did enjoy her company, and just, you know, and communicated with her. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, that's that's shown, and that's nice and all, but it really does, like, it, I think the one of the better things of the movie, especially of that uh, Roxanne Hal and then Roxanne Titan-like character dynamic, is the fact that they, they do get those scenes, you know, where it's just the two of them talking. And you can see, like, you know, when he's Hal and you have no idea, like, that he's going to become this, you know, big superpowered supervillain. He's just played off as, you know, this guy who's, like, he's a little uncomfortable. And, but, you know, they work together and stuff like that. They have, yeah. you know, this working relationship. And there's some jokes there. Um, but, yeah, like, it's it's interesting, for instance, that when, yeah, when Megamind just gives up on fighting Titan... 
like Roxanne goes out there and tries to reason with Titan and it's just like she's trying so hard to just get him to understand her and understand what their relationship always was which was you know like a respectful friendship that she like you know saw like a good working relationship but like the fact that he just doesn't understand that like it's there there is definitely something there yeah yeah and i want to give them credit for it's it's roxanne that first initiates the relationship with you know a quote unquote bernard like mm-hmm. Meg- Mega Man kind of has no interest in her at all. Every every thought of his up to that point in the movie is all about Metro Man and just his obsession with the superhero supervillain conflict. And she's just a, a a a pawn in their game up to that point. And it's not until he takes on the Bernard disguise and uh, you know when they have their little chat in the museum. Uh, before he blows it up, uh, that it's 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 her that has this first spark of feelings for fake Bernard, and you know says, "Oh, you should call me sometime." And she refers to him as partner, and that's kind of like a light bulb moment for him. He's like, "Oh, partner, what? Really? Like, we're this is you? You're interested in my company and and uh, uh, the things I have to to contribute to to this relationship." And, and all of that. And it's not a movie about Megamind just always secretly having feelings for her. It's more of like a thing that they both come to realize uh, on, their, on their own. Yeah, you can definitely read a little attraction in the opening sequence. Of at least one way from Megamind towards Roxanne. But, it's not as, but it doesn't have like a, a creepy I have you now kind of angle to it. It's, it's strictly it's all theater. Right. Yeah. Yeah. His number yeah. one interest yeah. is is in yeah using her to to uh, take on Metro Man. And then when Roxanne breaks up with him and says, "I know who you are now. I don't want to ever be involved with you," he doesn't like. There's not like a montage of like in so many other movies of him trying to to win her back with all this goofy stuff like like Bruce Almighty or whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, he kind of leaves her, my memory of it anyway, which I, I watched it hours ago, so I should remember, is that he leaves her alone. And yeah. he goes back to doing his thing until he needs her help for just to save the day and not, hey, I need to, I want to get back in touch with you and then try and make this thing happen. It's, yeah. oh, wait, no, you, I need your, your skills as a reporter and, and your background with the Metro Man to help to try and save the day. And then from there, it starts to rekindle. Yeah, he full on... He full on doesn't contact her at all until things go so far south with Hal with, with Titan that like yeah and 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 it's and it's only really because Hal reveals to him that it it was Roxanne that was the one that he had feelings for and that he saw them in the restaurant together that he knew like okay I need Roxanne's help in this because you know if she she could be the only person that's gonna be able to reach him at this point. Who else was it going to be, though? There's nobody else in the movie for him to get involved with. True. You think uh, about, like, again, I have, to, I have to bring in The Incredibles because it's just in my nature to do it. <laughs> the Incredibles has, like, an enormous cast of characters who show up for a bit, serve a great purpose, are really memorable, and then they go away. Yeah. This movie has none of those characters. There are these five people. Then there's, like, the warden. You meet the real Bernard for five seconds, and he's voiced by Ben Stiller. Um... And that's it. That's there's 
There's nobody else. Uh, so it's not as if when when Megamind creates this device to create to cre- give somebody else powers like Megamind, like Metro Man had. You have a, a minute thinking, who is he going to choose? And it's like, it doesn't matter who he chooses. There's <laughs> only one person left in the movie. It has to be Jonah Hill's character, unless they want to introduce somebody else in 40 minutes into the movie. So, right. I was thinking about that, uh, the comparison, because, yeah, like, uh, but I, I do think it might be a little unfair. Like, I'll definitely say that that criticism is there, because The Incredibles itself is a movie about superheroes trying to like tamp down that part of their lives and move into a regular working life with working people with normal people. And so you get more of a chance to show off more characters along that line that are just these, you know, friends, neighbors or whatever that just, you know, are also just general generic people who are nice, bad, whatever, and just, you know, fill in the space, but like have good lines, have good designs and have moments. Um, but it's true that, like this movie is it's working off of some very classic you know like superhero stuff so i mean when you look at i guess i i wouldn't know what age to call it but would it be silver age like those kind of comics where yeah it's just yeah you get yeah. yeah just those characters and then there's one or two people off to the side that keep on recurring but there's no sense of any civilian life or anything like that but it is true that i did miss a sort of um, hierarchy of like civilians that interacted with super power type people. Like there were in the Incredibles, you know, there's just like everybody has like, this is a world that's got that extra definition of it's got superheroes in it. And therefore normal people sometimes have superhero related jobs or deal with superheroes every now and then. And so there's so much more chance of just interaction on every level. Um, which, yeah, it, the movie does end up feeling a little bit lonely because of that. Megamind, that is. As a result, even though we, we don't... Once once Megamind has conquered the city, and I understand that to a degree this is intentional because he really doesn't know what to do with the city once he has it, but there's no sense that life has changed whatsoever for anyone since uh, Metro yes. Man vanished because there is nobody else in the movie. There's no ground-level character, really. Mm-hmm. Because Roxanne is not an ordinary person. She she is involved in this she's entangled in this world and she is like she's a public figure and Hal quickly becomes a superhero himself. But you know, people are jogging in the park and going out to dinner and is anything other than Megamind robbing some banks? Has anything changed and does anyone really have a reason to say this is Megamind's reign of terror? There's no terror. And I know again, I understand that part of the point is He's really not that bad a guy. He doesn't really want to hurt anybody but Mega, but, but but Metro Man, and ultimately doesn't even want to really hurt him so much as he wants to just dance around with him and make some fun comic booky theater. But there is no... The stakes aren't there because there's nobody else, and there's no world, really. There's just these handful of sets populated with random people who we don't know mm-hmm. who don't seem affected by the story at all. Yeah, there's <laughs> something I'll note is that every single shot that's there of, say, the ghost town that Metro City has become after Megamind takes over is undermined by every time they have a comic shot of, you know, someone 
flying into a building and then there's just people doing regular people normal life things there like just in the restaurant that's normal people everyday life things and that museum and just everywhere it's just these normal people and just and the kind of the look of the movie and some of what it's going for just totally gets undermined by the fact that they didn't really think that through yeah there's not much environmental change other than these things that exist in i guess a different universe almost I think part of that is down to, like, the kind of villain Megamind is. And, and, like, that, yeah, like, he doesn't know what to do. And also, I think part of it is just, they, there really isn't much time there that they even would have touched on a lot of that. Like, you, like the restaurant scene you mentioned is already after the point when Megamind has started to turn things around uh, after kind of hitting it off with with uh, Roxy sure sure and and so it's it, I mean part of it is just sort of in how economical the storytelling is like just they, they move things along so fast uh, yeah like I, the most you do see of yeah his reign of terror is the abandoned city uh, the garbage everywhere and uh, you know, just the fact that he's looted so many places. Uh, but it, it very quickly establishes, like, you don't, they don't spend time really where you get to see him firsthand looting and, and doing the things he does. It's more of a quick jump to his piles of, of cash and paintings and statues and things in the, the mayor's office or, or whatever, and, and just him being dissatisfied and disillusioned. That may play into the Silver Agey thing that we were talking about, though, where yeah. what's the ultimate goal of of uh, supervillains in Silver Age comics? Oh, we're going to take over the world or take over the city. It's like, mm-hmm. to do what? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, mm-hmm. and so, that's, yeah. so that's I guess the the thing about the movie, and so I, I guess I can I can forgive it to I can I can forgive it, but it also I feel like this was a movie was made six years after The Incredibles, and The Incredibles was an extremely ambitious movie given the technology. They had no idea how they were going to make this movie when they started making this movie. There hadn't even really been a theatrical film that was com- com- uh, feature length computer generated movie that had human characters in it yet that looked good or that anybody would want to look at and they made dozens of them and they enormous variety of set pieces it's underwater it's in space it's in the jungle it's in two different cities and this movie has the advantage of being made way later and the only limits are there are their imaginations at this point and they imagine a story with five people in this one town with these four locations that feels really, really small. And it's okay for a movie to be small, but it, it was noticeably small to me, and mm-hmm. I, I felt like it was a flaw in the movie. I think that is all just because it it is very much a Superman story, is what they're telling. So the characters you have are Superman, Lex Luthor, Lois Lane, Jimmy Olsen, and then Lex Luthor's henchperson. And that's like those are the characters in like a... Silver Age Superman story, and that's what you've got uh, in this movie. I think that as a, a combination of a lot of this stuff, of having a very small cast, of having a rather small scale, and of course being focused on a very similar dynamic between a handful of characters, I could not help but think about Dr. Horrible's sing-along blog the entire time I was watching this <laughs> movie, because 
Dr. Horrible, which came out two years earlier, um, in case any of you guys do not know out there in the listening audience, Dr. Horrible's sing-along blog was a um, 40-minute movie released in three parts on Hulu, uh, written and directed by Joss Whedon and company, starring Neil Patrick Harris, Nathan Fillion, uh, and and Felicia Day. It's the story of a lonely, sort of misunderstood supervillain who doesn't really want to hurt anybody, uh, and his and is trying to get back at the chiseled jaw asshole Superman type character played by Nathan Fillion, while they both are interested in the same woman played by Felicia Day. And there's a lot of the same sort of beats. Doctor Harble ends a lot darker of a place, <laughs> but. There is a lot that these two movies have in common. I'm a big fan of both, so I mean, I don't, I don't disagree with you at all, uh, except one has songs, <laughs> and, <laughs> and yeah, a much darker uh, place that it goes, but uh, it wouldn't be unfair to say this is like a Dr. Horrible story that kids can not be traumatized by. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I guess it was just it was just jarring to me watching it. I don't know if I remembered it last time or this time. We're being like, wow, these stories are really similar, and I, I can't I, I can't imagine that there's anything that there was any plagiarism involved. Um, Doctor no. Horrible came no. out in 2008. It took them a little bit of time to make, not not terribly long. Uh, it took them about a year to make it, and of course, uh, computer generated animated movies take a really long time to make. I don't think either of them knew what the other was doing when they were making these, but they yeah. are, they are strikingly similar in, in a lot of ways. Um, but this is the movie where, um, this is the movie where the, the villain ends up getting the opportunity to, to make good instead of being sent into a spiral of increasing sadness. Yeah. And I think, and I, I, I know I keep bringing up the Superman DNA that is inherent in Megamind, but I, I do think that's a huge part of it. And I, it's one thing that I don't see much of at all in Doctor in something like Doctor Horrible. I mean, other than just your standard superhero, supervillain antagonism tropes that kind of that started with Superman. Uh, it, there's they rely way more heavily on the Superman analogs in Megamind than anything in Doctor Horrible. Like that's there's there's they really don't touch on that at all. I mean, like like Penny is not. In Lois Lane, in in the least, I think that uh, the part about Megamind that I really like that that's coming up right now is just uh, I don't want to say that it's lazy because that that does imply a certain amount of malice that you know the filmmakers just didn't try hard enough. But I do think that the structure of Megamind, like it's so easy to tie connections between Megamind and other superhero things that even come close to having some elements of the Superman mythos in there. There's there that like that superhero myth in there. Like it's so easy to bring those things together because Megamind literally seems to only play on one twist. There are so many like so many other things in the past, like The Incredibles and Doctor Horrible and you know other just you know, there are other things that just add different layers to that add different things that it's playing with throughout that whole production but Megamind has this one thing and it does that very basically and so there's so much that you can see it like connecting to other things with because those things are this part but more 
There is, though, that one extra twist to this movie, which is kind of, I think, my favorite part about Megamind, is in the is that twist where you discover that Metro Man's not dead. He just mm-hmm. quit, and he faked his death, and it kind of adds this extra layer where Metro Man's not thrilled about his lot in life either. Yeah. He's just yeah. as much about the he was just as much playing the role that he was given as Megamind was, where everyone expects him to be this larger than life hero who's always gonna be there for them, and it's a lot of work for him. Mm-hmm. He, he can't he can't keep that up forever and eventually decides to take an opportunity to quit the business and start an undoubtedly awful music career. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and I do I do think that like, I was definitely surprised by it, genuinely surprised by that, and not in a terrible way. Like, the movie had just been on the rails for me for a while, and when that moment happened, I actually was genuinely interested. I was like, this is finally something different, something that gets me into, like, wanting to know what the characters do with this new information. Because, I, you know, it's very much just the one thing before that. But no, it's, it's a genuinely interesting thing, and, yeah, it, the the movie definitely... Uh, I guess it really does come alive, does that necessary bit more to be memorable uh, when that happens. I like it a lot. And I love how much that moment reframes the whole Megamind and Metro Man uh, relationship. Because up to that point, you're you're treated to this idea, especially with like the scenes of the two of them as children growing up, mm-hmm. that that it was just a real like antagonizing jerk to him. And, like, what an awful person, uh, you know, Metro Man was that put Megamind in this place. And then, uh, rather than reignite those feelings when he discovers that uh, Metro Man is still alive, he's actually, like, super cool dude to him. Like, he's just really chill. Like, oh, I just I just was didn't want to do this anymore. I, I'm tired. I want to focus on my music career and and all this and then is like the first person to actually give him an encouraging talk about you know look what uh you know find what you're meant for what what you're good at and and that kind of thing and he he just stops being a a jerk to him and is is just being a a a chill dude you get the (laughs) idea that for metro man being hateful or being or i guess being the nemesis of megamind was as much about giving megamind and the audience what they were expecting yeah and he doesn't he doesn't have any hard feelings at all i mean he calls him little buddy yeah Mm -hmm. and he keeps those the the first clue of that is you know he keeps those little trophies that like uh, megamind is like i can't believe he kept this it's like this it their relationship actually ends up meaning the same to both of them and that's yeah that's really nice yeah and I like that a lot. The final turn of the movie, where it appears that Metro Man has come out of come out of hiding to save the day, and then it turns out he actually hasn't, and it was just another play by Megamind. That was that was really that that twisted me up a little bit. Is at first I'm like, oh well, maybe it's good that you know you don't have to completely redeem Megamind, and it's nice to have him. But no, I know it's him, and no, I don't know about that. And it's like, and ended up feeling really good about it because it's like Megamind kind of gets to understand the power that Metro Man, inspirational power that Metro Man had, and he mm-hmm. plays him really respectfully. Yeah. He's yeah. not mocking him at all in his portrayal of Metro Man. 
but that ultimately the guy who saves the day, even in the eyes of the public, is Megamind, and he gets to take credit for it, and Roxy gets to say, listen, you're you're the guy now. And it doesn't feel that doesn't doesn't really feel doesn't really feel cheap. That last that last sequence, that last fight sequence, really feels like it's really visually exciting, and it really is is, is emotionally pretty genuine, and it feels very well earned. Yeah, I feel like overall it's it's just a really good, genuine like yeah redemption story for for a supervillain type. Yeah, uh, I mean that. Yeah, no, that, I just feel like that ending carries with it just that extra bit more of seriousness uh but also thematic death that really just makes the characters a little bit fuller so you really get the sense that yeah i want to see this character redeemed i like the twists that are happening things are nice and lively and unexpected now we haven't talked at all about um minion Uh, I guess there's not a whole lot to say about Minion. Uh, He's got the voice of David Cross. I think that, like the rest of the cast, David Cross does a fine job uh, portraying the weird fishbowl head robot buddy sidekick to Mm -hmm. Megamind, whose role in the movie is basically, I guess, to be a foil so that Megamind's not always talking to himself. Mm-hmm. But he's kind of a a, a nice, like, sort of a a sweet buddy figure for, for Megamind, and he's genuinely pretty funny. Yeah, like... He he doesn't have any he doesn't have any like genuine evil intentions. It's more just about encouraging Megamind and whatever his uh, his interests are uh, up to a point. Uh, I mean, like they he they come to blows when he over uh, the reveal that he's been secretly dating uh, Roxanne. But uh, I think that has more to do with. You abandoned. You're abandoning me. Then it has to do with your yeah. siding with the mm-hmm. enemy. Mm-hmm. Oh yeah, yeah. It, yeah. He doesn't have, yeah, any particular alliance to to evil. It's more just like, oh, this is the thing we do. This is our thing. This is I, I want to help you out, and and you're not even committed to this anymore. Like you. I think that uh, Minion's presence is really helpful to the first part of the film, and that it really helps Megamind come off as the guy that's not completely bad because he has had this lifelong companion. Like, he's this one true lifelong companion, and they're great friends. And their repartee, when it is good, it's really fun. And, like, it, it definitely helps set the tone correctly because Megamind is not this lonely villain who becomes good. He's this guy who totally understands what it means to have a real, you know, like, companionship sort of thing. And understand the value of that and he's not all bad because you've got proof you've got this guy that's you know this fish thing that he's been living with forever yeah so it's not it doesn't become a huge leap when he does earn the acceptance of of roxy and and when he does you know (laughs) see the error in his ways is he's got he's had at least the smallest amount of support in his life from his little alien fish in a robot ape body hmm. yeah and minion's presence is yeah it's it's just a pleasant writer shortcut to ease that transition along okay i feel like we've hit most of the uh most of what's worth talking about i guess in megamind we can probably start winding things down um unless does anyone else have something they'd really like to talk about 
Uh, only that I really enjoy Will Ferrell's Marlon Brando impression. Oh, yeah. Jeez. <laughs> <laughs> uh, um, okay. I guess yeah. um, a couple of little stray observations is that one of the things that really had me siding against the movie from the beginning, which struck me as being very DreamWorks, was some really uninspired source musical choices. Oh, jeez. <laughs> yeah, that, that had me rolling my eyes, yeah. like, really hard. Like, bad to the bone... Because he's bad, it's, don't you know? Um, uh, highway to Hell, except for they had to keep turning off the music before they said the word Hell. Um, <laughs> crazy Train. Um, back in Black later, because you have to have more ACDC. And this is after Iron Man and Iron Man 2, so... Uh, <laughs> it's after Iron Man, the first one. And Welcome to the Jungle showing up, and it's just like... Ultimately, though, I decided to forgive it because I don't think it's necessarily the movie... Being like, yeah, we're going to play you some songs you recognize to help make sure you get the cues properly. It yeah. was, Megamind is that lame. Yeah. These are the songs he's going to choose to be his theme music. They're not going to be terribly original, and they're not going to be, you know, very textured. He's got a very simple idea of who he is and what's going to be cool, because he's not cool. But what he might think is cool, and not to say that ACDC isn't cool, is to walk around in a giant robot while ACDC plays. And I can't really argue with him, because if I had a giant robot, or even a small um, walking-powered armor suit that flies and is red and gold and whatever, I would probably play ACDC when I stomped <laughs> around or flew around <laughs> in it. And I can think of one or two people who might also do that. Right. So, and I guess it was... I, I rolled my eyes, but ultimately, I, I guess I can, I, can, I can definitely let that go. I agree with you. I yeah, see it as case. a character choice. Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. And as much as they, it works the same for Metro Man when he enters to Elvis Presley's A Little Less Conversation. Oh, yeah. Full on dressed like Elvis <laughs> with the, the hair and everything. Well, that's that's more stuff about like art imitating life, imitating art imitating life, and like, infinite regress in that sense. Because <laughs> Elvis took his look from Captain Marvel Jr. Yeah. And then Captain Marvel Jr.'s look changed a little for Elvis. And now, and now in the, you know, at least there is no more Captain Marvel Jr., but, but he would say, you know, he would, he would say, oh yeah, I love Elvis. I patterned my look after Elvis. Um, <laughs> and then you have a character that's spoofing Superman, but dressed like Elvis. So anyway, <laughs> and on and on and on and on and on. Yeah. Anybody got anything else they want to say about the movie? Uh, I, I would say, uh, I've, I know I've been praising and defending it for most of this conversation. So I will say my one negative I'll give it is I don't find DreamWorks uh, uh, artistry of the human characters to be very appealing at all. Okay, thank you, because I was going to say <laughs> otherwise. <laughs> yeah, I didn't know uh, if we wanted to bring it down. Yeah, yeah, I would. Pocket, it, but. No, yeah, from a, from an artist's point of view, and I, I think Megamind looks great. I think every non-human character looks great, and even like Metro Man is at least evoking the right thing. But it takes me a. Like, I'm used to it now, but certainly when I first watched it, it took me a while to really get used to, uh, like Roxanne's look and just, and it's kind of just the way that that's up to that point anyway. That's kind of how DreamWorks. Uh, rendered their human characters. They're much better now. When you look at the How to Train Your Dragon movies, they have that's a they have a very appealing style in that. But 
this was kind of the last DreamWorks movie that had these kind of garish looking human designs. Like one thing I really noticed is that they just do not play with eye size and shape at all in their yeah. character designs. And that that really makes like every character like just from straight on shots just appears cute. Like every single one, which is very, very odd. Like they all just evince the same character tone. Um, uh, do you do any of you know about um, how much Guillermo del Toro did when he was brought in to re-edit the movie? I heard that he came in three weeks before the end of production, and that his and that I, he basically said, "Hey, why don't you start it with him falling, and then cut back." That's the only thing that I've read for sure that he worked on. Okay. The final action set piece is so much better than the action in the rest of the movie that I'd like to think that he was involved in that, but I know that this stuff takes forever to do. Yeah. So I can't imagine that with three weeks in production that he managed to say managed to say storyboard anything. Right. Or to do any certainly it's far too way too far late in the game for him to have designed anything. Yeah. And it's interesting and you mentioned Iron Man earlier, but I know like Justin Thoreau also has like a, a writing credit in in this movie as well, and he he wrote uh, the second Iron Man movie, hmm. or I should or I should say wrote in quotation marks because I know a lot of that was yeah. improvised. <laughs> <laughs> That's another movie where somebody was brought in late in the game, but I guess not as late in the game to really tighten up the action because Iron Man yeah. two gets gets uh, Gendy Tartakovsky staging that final fight. And it shows. There's so much Samurai Jack in that fight. <laughs> yeah, there really is. <laughs> but now we're getting away from our center here. So, so Tracy, where can people find you on the internet? On the internet, you may find me at Twitter as at Mockingbird, M-A-U-K-I-N-G-B-I-R-D. And you pretty much use that spelling of Mockingbird anywhere online to find me, uh, including Tumblr and... I don't know, deviant art where you can find my wonderful drawings of pregnant dudes. <laughs> yes. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> uh, um, if you are interested in seeing me IRL and are in the Omaha, Nebraska area, you can find me doing improv comedy every Friday night at the Backline or in the Florentine Players production of Oscar coming up in August 21st through 23rd. But you're listening to this on the internet, and are comic fans, so you'll probably never see me, ever. <laughs> All right, Ian, where are you? Uh, well, you can find me on Tumblr, which is my main source of stuff, uh, at tggp.tumblr.com. Uh, mostly art, writings, just whatever I'm feeling like doing. It's mostly my stuff. Uh, you find me on Twitter at Ian is sober. That is Y-E-N is sober. And I guess I could plug my very new anime podcast, uh, Mouthful of Toast, uh, at mouthfulloftoast.com. We've got two episodes out, so feel free to skim through some of them and leave some feedback, because we definitely like to make that into a thing, too. That's an anime podcast, right? Yep, yep, yep. I guess that's yeah. probably enough for today for Megamind and for Supers on Screen. Mm-hmm. So I want to thank my guests for joining me for this episode. And thank you, uh, dear listeners, for listening to this episode. Um, We'll be back next week with Columbia's first Spider-Man movie. And that ought to be exciting. Ooh. So uh, I'll see you guys in, uh, you know, fingers crossed. We had a little little, uh, little unplanned hiatus last week. 
Well, hopefully we'll see you in seven days with uh, with Spider-Man here on Spider-Man Screen. Thanks a lot, everybody, and have a good week. Thanks, guys. Thank you. Supers on Screen is produced by Dylan Roth for Deadshirt.net. Visit Deadshirt.net for reviews and commentary on comics, movies, TV, music, and more. Like us on Facebook or follow us on Twitter at Deadshirt.net. That's D-E-A-D-S-H-I-R-T-D-O-T-N-E-T. You can find me, Dylan Roth, on Twitter at D-Y-L-A-N-R-O-T-H. Our theme music is Become the Night by Big Damn Heroes. Deadshirt.net. Consider everything.